Hello and welcome to Practicing Health Equity, a podcast where we take a look at the American healthcare system through the lens of equity. I'm your host and guide, Matt Kastner. First, I'd like to explain the name Practicing Health Equity, starting with the first word. To do that, I would like to use the strongest essay introduction known to humankind. Webster's Dictionary defines practice as, first, to do or perform often, customarily or habitually, as in to practice politeness. Second, to be professionally engaged in, as in the practice of medicine. Third and lastly, to perform or work at repeatedly so as to become proficient, as in practicing the bassoon. Each of these connotations highlights different dimensions of progress towards health equity. Like practicing politeness, practicing health equity calls on us to consider our daily habits. Like practicing medicine, practicing health equity calls on us to see this work as a profession unto itself. And like practicing the bassoon, practicing health equity calls on us to accept that we are still learning and still improving, but only through deliberate work. It is my hope that we can do all of these things in this space on this podcast. And while a single podcast probably won't end health disparities in America, much less in the world, I hope to provide some tools, spark some new trains of thought, and build a community. Each season, we will be closely examining a practical perspective on health equity. My goal with this is to go in-depth and to be comprehensive. One of the things that's always bothered me is when issues of justice are given superficial consideration, often by large corporations trying to capitalize on the latest tragedy or the latest trend. To me, that sentiment is captured so well in portion of Bo Burnham's Inside. In it, he says, the question is no longer, do you want to buy wheat thins, for example? The question is now, will you support wheat thins in the fight against Lyme disease? So our goal here is to do the exact opposite and try to give each issue the consideration it deserves. Another thing that I really want to accomplish in this space is to give dimension to the people we talk to and the people we talk about. Speaking for myself, it can be very easy to learn about people who do great, inspiring things and think that they are somehow above all us normies. In reality, each and every one of these people is flawed, and most of them are just making it up as they go. My hope is that by showing who these people are and how they got where they are, that we can all more easily take action. So that's the practicing part of it. Moving on to health equity. Health equity is basically a state of fair or just distribution of health. We'll be grappling with the nuances of that distribution throughout the first season, but to give a starting guidepost, I'll share a definition of health disparities by Dr. Paula Braveman. Braveman defines a health disparity as first, a difference in health status, second, that is modifiable, and third, that is tied to social disadvantage. We'll be taking a couple logical shortcuts to say that health equity is the absence of health disparities, but it's close enough for now. And as Jean Valjean says, who am I? I may not be a French prisoner with a penchant for baked goods, but my name is Matt Kastner, and I am passionate about health disparities in America. I love the Baltimore Orioles, musical theater, if you couldn't guess from the Les Miserables referenced right there. I love gardening, cooking, and spending time with my family. I am also 
a cisgendered straight white male living in Ellicott City, Maryland, an affluent suburb of Baltimore in the sixth wealthiest county in the United States. So thinking back to Braveman's definition of a health disparity, I really have every social advantage. So while I'm passionate about addressing health disparities, I've never experienced them personally. So what credibility do I have to talk about health disparities? Why shouldn't you just turn this off and listen to Serial one more time? And with that, I'd like to thank you for listening to the first and last episode of Practicing Health Equity, and let's roll the credits. No, please, uh, please stick with me for at least another minute. So why should you listen to me? We'll cover this a bit later and really throughout the whole season, but the path to stable, lasting health equity requires that everyone elevate it as a priority, not just those who are harmed. And indeed, through this season, we'll be exploring how disparities harm really everyone. In this exercise, you can think of me as your tour guide. I'll also be bringing diverse voices to speak for themselves and to add their own perspective and wisdom. So with the introductions over, let's talk about this season. So where do we begin? I'm going to begin with a story about a river. It's a beautiful, cloudless day. You can feel the humidity absorb you as you walk along the banks of this river. A family of striders is having a picnic in a tide pool. Then, coming around the bend of the river, you see a stranger floating down the river in distress. First you hear him. Help me, help me, I can't f***ing swim! Wow! Nasty little mouth on that one, huh? You wade out into the middle of the river, just in time, and the man grabs onto your shirt, almost pulling you into the current with him. You dig in your heels and brace yourself, steadying the man and putting an arm around him. He says his name is Daryl. My f***ing name is Daryl! Okay, that's not really necessary, Daryl. Together, you walk slowly back to the shore, step after step after step, until you're in the sand, and before you catch your breath and ask Daryl why he has to curse so damn much, you hear, Help me, help me! I think profanity is inappropriate and I can't swim! And he's already down the river. Come on, man! F*** you! I didn't even get to say my name! Tragic. As the story goes, you check on Daryl and start upstream bounding through the shallows, looking for where these people might be coming from. Before long, you get to a low bridge without handrails. Checking your map, it seems to be the only bridge for miles in either direction, and there are a lot of people crossing the bridge. Like, a lot. And as if on cue, you see another man lose his balance and begin to topple into the river, and you again begin bounding out into the middle of the river. There are dozens of versions of this story, and they're all used to explain the concept of upstream determinants of health. Environmental determinants like where we live, or behavioral determinants like smoking. The moral is supposed to be that you need to just build a handrail on the bridge, or sometimes it's a large man throwing people into the river. People usually don't give the characters names or a proclivity for swear words. But that's the practicing health equity difference, I guess. I like the metaphor of the stream, but not for the superficial morals it provides about preventive care and the consequences of over-reliance on medical services. To explain, let me ask you a question. Where does a river truly start? 
While humans can label that the Mississippi River begins at Lake Itsaka, more than 80 tributaries flow into the Mississippi River, each reaching back into the plains, mountains, and marshes of Middle America. The water from each of those tributaries makes the Mississippi what it is, and each of those tributaries has its own tributaries. A full accounting of where the Mississippi River starts takes us back into every stream, creek, rivulet, brook, and spring in its 1.2 million square mile basin. These places where a river starts are called the headwaters. It's this idea of headwaters that I find so fascinating about the metaphor of the stream. If we go up that stream, up past every bridge with a faulty handrail, up past every large man throwing people into the river, what is there? What is there at the beginning of the river? What are the headwaters of health equity, and where does this idea start? This season, we will be exploring the headwaters of health equity. There are three main branches of this river. The first branch consists of the story of equity from a philosophical perspective. We will consider ethical frameworks that each paint a different conception of what health justice looks like. The second branch tells the story from the perspective of religious faith in which we will consider the complex interplay between faith, health, and equity. And the third and final branch considers our origins and evolution as people, our biology, our psychology, and the societies that emerge from them. So if this is supposed to be a podcast about practical steps we can take towards reaching health equity, why are we starting by exploring the headwaters of health equity in a very theoretical, academic place? To start answering that question, I'll pass on some wisdom from Lean Management, my favorite Japanese automobile production-themed quality improvement model, specifically a problem-solving tool called the Five Whys. The basic idea with the Five Whys is that when you're solving a problem, you need to ask why five times to get to the true answer. I will illustrate this principle using a conversation I had several years ago with my son, Austin, when he was four years old. Does my butt think? No. Why doesn't my butt think? Because you think in your head. Why do I think in my head? Because that's where your brain is. Why does my brain think? Uh, I don't know. Evolution? So, with that thrilling performance, we can see how asking why even just a couple times, can lead us to deep questions and deep insight. And if we think about those five whys in health equity, they lead us right to the headwaters. And this is really the point of lean management, to not jump to conclusions and to make sure we fully understand a problem before we try to solve it. And that's why we're not starting with cool payment models or elegant community engagement programs. That's why we're starting in the headwaters. So beyond let's understand the problem, there are three reasons we're starting with such a deep focus on the headwaters of health equity. Though you have clicked on a podcast titled Practicing Health Equity and listened to, let me check my watch, at least 14 minutes of it, health equity is not a universal priority. Achieving lasting health equity requires that it become a stable social and political priority. So the first reason we are focusing on the headwaters is that I believe understanding them is a critical step in elevating equity as a policy priority. To understand more about health equity's place in the public consciousness, we'll turn now to our first guest, Sarah. 
Hi, my name is Sarah Gallist, and I'm an Associate Professor of Health Policy and Management at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. And could you tell us how you got here? My story is basically that I was in classes toward the early part of my School of Public Health doctoral degree. So I was taking classes on health systems and health policy and foundations of public health and learning about social determinants of health and health disparities. And this was back in the mid-2000s. And I think what I kept puzzling over and what I kept wondering is why were so many of these ideas about health disparities and the non-medical determinants of health so central in like my school of public health classes, but it felt so fringe in the broader cultural narrative about health, like how the news was reporting about health, how my parents understood health. My parents are both uh, we're both journalists. They're retired now. And so I kind of grew up saturated in media and thinking about how important um, the news is in informing the public about issues that matter and that I wasn't seeing these issues that were so central in my public health training represented in the media or the broader culture. And so I think that the the puzzle that occurred to me in, I don't know, the second year of my graduate program was, well, what happens if the public were to understand these deep structural inequities and how those factors relate to health and health outcomes, like what would be different? How would our politics be different? How would our policies be different? And like the broader political discourse about what health policies are necessary. So that was kind of the puzzle that motivated my choice of a dissertation topic. I remember thinking, well, I can't do a dissertation about that. And my advisor was like, why not? Sure you can. So I did my dissertation around news media coverage of type 2 diabetes and trying to count and quantify the extent to which issues of disparities were represented in news media. And this was in 2006, 2007 news media, as well as looking at survey research to better understand how if, you know, the news media were different, if the news represented uh, people living with diabetes and the causes of diabetes differently, how would that affect public opinion? Um, And I think one thing that's funny about that is that the same thing that puzzled me in my first few years of graduate school, I'm now, you know, like 15 years out of that experience. And it's still kind of the same central question in my research area, which is like, what is the public understanding about health and health policy? How do the news media cover those issues? And, and what's that connection? And if if one were to change, how would the other change? Yeah, that's interesting. So, you know, you've obviously learned something. You, you've at least partially answered that question in the last 15 years. So how would you put those pieces together with, with what you understand now? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, what's funny is that there has been, there has been some change. So I think that the news, sort of, I'm talking about the news. And when I say news, I'm really talking about mainstream news sources, sort of like dominant print news traditional or legacy media. News is spending a lot more attention around issues of health inequity alongside sort of broader recognition of of structural racism in society and and reporting on on racial issues and racial injustice more regularly. So we have seen more trends in covering these things. So back when I did my dissertation, it was something like fewer than 10% of all the news articles about diabetes that I collected for my dissertation ever mentioned disparities. And while I haven't replicated that study in like the present era, I would suspect it would be very different now. And, you know, news coverage of COVID-19 as a as a counterpoint did attend a lot to issues of, of disparity and equity in, in COVID-19 outcomes. Yet, At the same time, when I look at what we know about public opinion data over the same time period from, you know, the early 2000s till today, 
we're not seeing like a dramatic growth in public recognition of these issues. So whereas I would have thought that we're seeing an agenda shift in the media and among policymakers, sort of thinking more critically and centering issues of, of equity in their work, it's not reflected in how the public um, still thinks about these issues. Maybe it's just there should, there's a considerable lag and we shouldn't expect that change to have happened yet. But, you know, in the survey data that I know about and the data that I've collected myself, it really wouldn't suggest huge amounts of, of growth in insight and recognition and perceptions of disparities or, you know, support to do something about them. So it's a, it's, um, a bit discouraging, to say the least. Yeah, so... How would you account for that that differential uptake of themes of equity between what's covered by sort of legacy news media and public opinion in general? Yeah. Well, one source of disconnect is, you know, where the public gets their news sources compared to where public health professionals get their news. I mean, I think over the same period, if we think about fragmentation and change in media institutions, if, again, if we're thinking about like, I'm timing it selfishly based on when I was in graduate school compared to now. So talking about, you know, 2005 compared to today. What's also changed is where people are getting their news and and sort of an, a less reliance on those um, national news sources as more types of news sources have emerged and, you know, the rise in social media, other types of online news sources, and increasingly self-selection of news outlets based on what one presumes they'll find in those outlets. So we know a lot about over this time period, people are selecting news sources based on their own political predispositions or worldviews. So I think when we watch change in the media landscape or the media's attention or agenda setting around health disparities and then expect it to naturally then disseminate into the broader public, that assumption is probably not correct because people's media diets are so fragmented and different from person to person. So yes, it's not like Walter Concrete preaching about health inequities and everyone is tuning in to that same message. That's just, that doesn't happen at all anymore. Um, so that's one reason I think for the disconnect. Another reason I think is that over the same time period, we've seen health and politics get increasingly entangled. People like suddenly paid attention to the politicization or the polarization that underlies a lot of aspects, if not all aspects of COVID-19 since 2020. And so by that, I mean that Republicans and Democrats have really differed in almost all dimensions of their attitudes about the pandemic from its severity to the, you know, type of threat it has to what policy mitigation measures are appropriate to individual behaviors like vaccination and masking. And so that seemed new to, I think, a lot of observers that there was so much polarization around a health topic, which um, some might have thought that would we wouldn't see because it's health, it affects everyone, it should be more universally motivating. But I've actually been observing partisan gaps in opinions about health for, for a long time and not, not that long because I haven't been researching for 50 years, right? Um, but since I've started doing public opinion surveys about health, I have seen polarization and partisan gaps and attitudes about all sorts of health issues, some that you wouldn't think would be necessarily politically charged. So all of that is to say that the other reason I don't think we're seeing like dramatic growth in the population's recognition or understanding of health inequity is because it's getting wrapped up and tied into partisan politics. And so it may be there's only growth among 
one political party and not another, which then on the aggregate you see as there being kind of a ceiling effect or a sort of maximum level looking at the public of a whole of who is is recognizing or appreciating health disparities or health inequities. Yeah, so kind of carrying that forward, could you speak directly to the impact of COVID-19 on public opinion, I guess, both from the perspective of the paper you published, and then, you know, perhaps putting that in broader context as well? Yeah, sure. So yeah, I'll start by explaining the paper we published. So, you know, right at the onset of COVID in, you know, March of 2020, I think people were already observing the inequities um, in who who was experiencing the brunt of COVID morbidity and mortality from the get-go. And so my research team had the opportunity to put a, two, a few questions in April 2020 in a public opinion survey. And so we wanted to assess whether the public was attuned to these issues that were being you know, discussed and observed in public health circles. So we asked um, four questions asking whether the public recognized that there were disparities in COVID mortality based on age with older people more likely to die than younger people, based on chronic illness with those with pre-existing chronic conditions more likely to die than those without, based on race with black people more likely to die than white people at that point, again, a point in time in April 2020, and people of lower income status more likely to die than people with higher incomes. And so we got that out into the field in a sense to see like how much has this message disseminated Again, with that that sort of model I just described, where you know, if it's in the media, if the if the if public and scientists are talking about it, then naturally that would translate into public awareness of this, um, you know, then very new phenomenon of of COVID nineteen. So uh, we filled out that study, and we found that there was really really broad public rec- recognition of the disparities by age and by chronic illness. Only about half at that point in April. 2020 recognized that there were disparities in mortality by uh, race or income levels. So then that was April, right? So we all kind of can know, we all remember what happened in May and June of 2020. Um, So I live in Minneapolis. So we're talking about the um, George Floyd's murder and the, the, you know, coming racial reckoning and protests and extraordinary attention to racial injustice across many domains, including in health. So tons of recognition, again, recognition in in sort of mainstream media and among public health authorities about racism as a public health crisis and really connecting the two. So looking at racism and criminal justice and policing and, and, and aiming to make that connection as to what we were seeing with the just horrible inequities in COVID-19 outcomes as well. So we had an opportunity to go back into the field and survey another cross-section, another representative sample of Americans in August of um, 2020. So later that year, toward the end of that summer. Um, And then we did it again um, in April of 2021. So our hypothesis was, you know, despite all the work that I had done that maybe would have countered this hypothesis, we really did hypothesize that we would see a growth in recognition of specifically racial disparities in COVID-19 in in August, and maybe that it would have maintained, right, by by April 2021, a year into um, the pandemic. And what we found was not that at all. We found almost like a uh, identical levels across all four types of disparities at each of those two other waves and even slight declines in recognition of disparities. I was so surprised to see um, the lack of growth 
Um, then again, I, I looked at it. I told my collaborator, look at it. Like, it's, it, did I do this right? Did I mess something up? So I think we were really surprised to see that stagnancy in public recognition. And then we dug into the data. And um, as I mentioned, I've always been very interested in political differences and public opinion about U.S. health policy and public health. So stratified the data by the respondents' political affiliation. And what we found was there were no differences between Democrats and Republicans and their recognition that there are disparities in mortality by age or chronic illness, but really big gaps, really big partisan gaps in recognition of those income and racial disparities. And those gaps um, were maintained across the three time periods. Uh, so you asked me to telescope back and think about what this means for broader understandings of, of health inequity. And I guess I think if we don't see movement <laughs> In the biggest health crisis of our, you know, what, millennia, I don't know, century, at uh, least century if we go back to the flu of 1918, given the enormous amount of attention in the media to COVID-19, given the efforts of municipalities from cities to states to the federal government denouncing racism as a public health crisis, aiming to make that link, and then we're, we're sort of still not seeing much, much change that tells me that we have a, a long way to go in thinking about ways to communicate these issues of health inequity to the public. Um, so I don't know if those patterns have been maintained. I'm going to be sort of fingers crossed fielding and fielding the survey again this April to look at a sort of two years later a data point and also right within before the federal public health emergency ends in May of 2023. So I'll be really keen on seeing whether we continue to see that sort of stagnancy or leveling or ceiling effects in, in public recognition of these inequities, or whether possibly there has been growth over the last 24 months. Um, but I do not know. And I guess my expectation my cynical expectation is likely that there there won't be much, much change. But that's an empirical question. So we'll see. It's easy to look at that result and feel like there's nothing to be done, to, to feel hopeless, to feel cynical. What is the path forward from that point? I, I am not so cynical. Um, I think the first piece that I want to emphasize and that I always emphasize with my students and with anyone I can talk to, so here I am, I get to say it again to you and, and to your audience, is that the numbers don't speak for themselves. I think there's a truism in sort of public health discourse that if we just hold up the numbers, like this percent of people died of this illness compared to this percent of this group of people that died of this illness, that that's inherently motivating or meaningful to people. The disparity statistics on COVID are horrifying, right? But it's not the statistics and continuing to repeat those statistics that's going to probably break through. So in a way, in the study that we did, we were asking about recognition of those statistics. We weren't asking about recognition of sort of the meaning underlying them or whether people believe those statistics to be emblematic of something morally wrong or something about fairness. We didn't tap into anything deeper and we didn't provide any context or explanation for those differences. And I think that the reason I'm not saying, well, there's nothing that can be done, there's so much more we need to do to try, right? What are the ways to both communicate about health equity and inequity in ways that people can understand and that they won't 
have negative response to. I think so the two negative responses that could be happening in what like underlying the psychology of what I see in the public opinion data is people dismissing it as not real, right? Or like, you know, there's also a distrust in science that's overlaid on this a bit. So if it's like, I don't believe those statistics, that can be reflected in an answer of I don't believe these disparities exist, right? So that's maybe a long-winded way of saying there's a lot of of research that needs to examine better ways to communicate about structural inequity that does not lead to a kind of a simple backlash effect or denial or lack of acceptance. And I think there is a lot of promising research going on in that area. And then I think the other thing is that we've also so far, and I put myself in this camp, have had a pretty simplistic understanding of the politics and the policy process. So it's sort of been a focus of like the so-called like persuadables in the middle. Like if we can just get to 51% rather than 49% of people sort of like working toward a majority, that that's like the political, pro- that's like the democratic political process toward change. Um, and I think that's just one vision or version of what politics could look like for actually changing and dismantling systems. And so another way is thinking about how, what do you know, what are the what are the stories and strategies that are mobilizing for a base of people who might already believe this, but think there's nothing that can be done about it, right? Whereas if we can demonstrate, you know, how changing policies can produce changes in these outcomes and, and kind of show the path forward through policies and systems change, that might be the way to get people to care about these issues if they actually see that there's something to do about it. Whereas just talking about the data and the inequities could contribute to kind of the cynicism you just described (laughs) Um, that like, well, there's nothing to do about it. So why should I even care? Or why should I say that I support X, Y, and Z policy um, if it's not going to have a difference? Um, So that's sort of my source of, of optimism here um, is twofold thinking about better communication strategies and different sort of political uh, visions for the future. Yeah, so I think in some ways you're almost, you know, the perfect person for me to be talking to near the beginning of this journey, because that's essentially what I'm trying to do is communicate with people about health equity. So I'm wondering if you have, you know, any guidance, like what are what are the magic words? How do you either persuade people to to view it as a priority or how do you talk to people who might already think it's a priority? Yeah, no, that's like the million dollar question. And I don't have answers to that yet. But I think kind of, um, you know, key is trying to jump out of the, the or not use some of the, the public health jargon. Like, I don't think the phrase health equity is very helpful when you're trying to communicate out. It's very helpful within public health circles, because we understand what that means. We understand what it means from a values and moral basis, as well as a substantive content of public health practice research and sort of broader work. And so I'm not saying that the concept of health equity isn't useful. Um, It's just useful when you are defining it in terms of which audience finds that phrase meaningful. But I think so thinking about breaking down those terms. So I'd be curious, you know, as you move forward, what what terms others are using to talk about this area of health equity. But I don't think just, you know, saying something like we should all care about health equity is going to have immediate traction with, you know, my parents or the guy on the street or Uncle Bob, right? It's just, it's it's not afraid. People think about equity in their like 
houses, right, and mortgages. Um, and they might have heard about equity connected to race, maybe, but it's it's just not a concept that I think is really clear um, outside of public health circles, which doesn't detract from its importance within public health circles. But it's, I think, again, something to be mindful of um, when communicating outward to external audiences. To take a couple steps backwards, why is public opinion about health equity important in the first place? Yeah, um, you know, there's different theoretical levels to answer that question in. So first is really pragmatic. If the field of public health wants to understand its impact in broader public discourse, then understanding public sentiment, attitudes, beliefs, and opinions is, is one way to do that, right? It's a way of thinking about the outcomes of the efforts of public health on the key constituencies, which are, you know, the public. Public health has public in it. So so there's a, a normative element that we ought to care what the public thinks about the topics we that we um, invest so much of our time and energy in. And then I think the second path is sort of the, you know, democratic with a small d, right? So looking for um, if we want to, you know, understand political feasibility toward some of the structural and policy solutions that people in public health think are going to be important, then that demand side is important. The demand being demand among the public for those things, right? Because policymakers theoretically listen to constituents. And and so a, an understanding of the pulse of public opinion um, around these issues that are important within public health is helpful in interpreting the potential political feasibility of these policy options. And then I think the other piece of it is going back to what I said about alternative models beyond just looking at the persuadable middles or trying to understand the opinions of the moderates who might, you know, vote for the Democrat one year and the Republican one year and try to persuade them is also because public opinion can help us better understand the subgroups among the public who who might have the potential to be mobilized. So it's not just the sort of levels of opinion that matters, also the intensity of opinion, both the intensity of potential support or intensity of opposition, which can be really, really helpful to know. But I'm biased because like, I just think public opinion is important. <laughs> and so sometimes it's hard to break down um, and convince other people because it feels inherent to me that understanding public views is important. <laughs> Oh, maybe that's your your parents, you know, talking through you, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, child of journalists, <laughs> caring, you know, spent a yeah childhood pouring over the media and thinking about these issues. So. Yeah. So, like, I think the strongest statement you could make is like, it's impossible to achieve health equity without having some level of public consensus that there are disparities and that we should prioritize them and do something about them. Like, would you agree with that as a statement that it is impossible or like kind of how would you dial that up or down? No, I think that's a good baseline, right? We are not going to see progress in advancing the policies and systems changes that are needed for improving population and health equity if the public is not even aware of these issues as problems, as problems for policy to address, right? So I, I, I agree with that sort of statement that you described. Thanks, Sarah. So while Sarah talked to us about elevating health equity as a policy priority, one could imagine that process of public deliberation and policymaking 
to operate on a time scale of years or decades as those macro-level social trends play out. There are perhaps also opportunities at the micro-level to make incremental progress towards health equity. That brings us to the second reason that we're starting this journey in the headwaters, which is that understanding our own moral compass allows us to make incremental progress towards equity in the world that does not universally support equity as a priority. And for that, we're going to check in with Dr. Nick King. Hi, Nick. Hi, my name is Nick King. I'm an associate professor at McGill University, where I hold appointments in the Department of Ethics, Equity, and Policy and Department of Epidemiology, Biostatistics, and Occupational Health in the School of Population and Global Health and in the Max Bell School of Public Policy. And how did you get here? My road here has been very windy. My PhD was in the history of science, and I got a master's degree in medical anthropology at Harvard University. And after that, I realized that I'm very much oriented towards thinking of history as a useful tool of analysis for understanding the present. And I really wanted to be much more present focused. So I had the great good fortune of doing a postdoctoral fellowship with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation called the Health and Society Scholars at the University of Michigan, basically in the epidemiology department. And from there wound up in bioethics. And my real area of expertise is, is public health ethics and policy. But I, I honestly would say the, the, the really most important element of my biography is um, I grew up in Washington, D.C. in the 1980s. And a lot of my experiences growing up, uh, living in Washington, D.C., uh, I went to college in Philadelphia, that the things that were going on at the time, including the, the nascent HIV AIDS epidemic and the public health response or, or stunning lack thereof. And a lot of the intertwining of sort of moral issues, public health responses, reshaping of scientific understandings of health and illness really shaped me in ways that in some, in some, in profound ways, I was very much struck by the work of ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power and other groups primarily LGBTQ plus groups who said public health is exacerbating the social discrimination that we already feel, right? You know, I grew up when this, the pages of the New York Times had editorials that literally said, maybe we should, and I'm going to use the words, the, the language of the time, tattoo homosexuals, hemophiliacs and drug users to warn other people. And, you know, the people who would be affected by this said, no, that's a violation of our rights, of our civil rights. So, yeah, I just, I'm just recognizing a lot of these things in myself. And, and, you know, you just, you, everyone comes from somewhere, you know, we're not, we're not dropped onto the planet fully formed after we finish our PhDs. Uh, although it sometimes feels that way. <laughs> So let's rewind a bit. How important do you think health equity is among the folks you work with and teach? You know, my students are, are a, a very unusual group. They're a group of people who care about the health of others already. So they think that it's just, it just makes sense. It's the default. It's intuitive. Like, why wouldn't you? I think it's, it's unusual in the world to care that much about health, the health of others. And it's a point of view that 
isn't shared by everybody. And when you get out into the real world beyond my graduate seminar, you're going to be encountering a lot of people who don't care about the health of others and may be very resistant to the idea of caring about the health of others, right? And at a basic level, how do they navigate that environment where most folks have a different moral compass? I think it's really important that, again, in our contemporary scene with everything so like polarized, it's very easy and attractive to just carve your position and say, well, I'm pro-public health. And that means in being pro-public health, I accept a whole basket of values and approaches and even a language. And then my opponents, they embrace a completely different set of values and languages. I think we need to elucidate our own values, right? Because I think often that will lead us first to better understand why we think things are important. But the second thing is, is what you alluded to. Again, if we don't understand our own values and we don't do the work of trying to understand where these came from, people who don't share our values are going to seem completely alien to us. They're going to seem wrong-handed and crazy. We won't be able to understand where they're coming from. We won't be able to interact with them. We won't be able to communicate with them. Now, I'm not naive. There are a lot of people who don't share my values who I'm never going to change their mind, right? What I'm hoping is that, again, maybe on the margins, we will understand a little better how their decisions are informed by their values, won't dismiss them out of hand, and maybe can help those who are suffering, even if they don't share our values already. Great. So where do we start to unwind others' beliefs and our beliefs? And is that even an important thing to do, to trace where these views come from? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's very important to trace where, you know, the sort of the sources of a lot of these beliefs and frameworks. Not because I think everyone should read Kant, right? Or even come up with a good definition of utilitarianism. It's because for the most part, the beliefs that we have, the frameworks that we implicitly use, the language we use comes from somewhere, right? So anytime you talk about like the efficiency of an intervention, you're importing a kind of implicit utilitarianism. Like, why is efficiency important, right? If you just say, well, efficiency is important, I just feel that way, I think you're really missing out. You're missing out on the fact that, like, you didn't come up with that yourself. You, you are sort of standing on the shoulders of a lot of prior, not just thinking, but prior public debate that has elevated efficiency above equity, for example, right? Why is freedom so important, right? Why is it that when people critique public health, often they use the language of rights, of freedoms, of choice, right? Thanks, Nick. And at a basic level, how do they navigate that environment where most folks have a different moral compass? Yeah, I, I mean, I think people do very they differ quite widely on their, like you said, their moral compass. I think it's very important to be both respectful of this variation without being relativistic. And what do I mean by that? Let's take a, an important topic right now, vaccine hesitancy, vaccine denial, right? 
there are some individuals and groups who are very anti-vaccination. And we can sort of say, well, they're crazy or they don't understand the science. You know, my understanding of the empirical literature is like, that's the worst thing you can say that will only push them farther, right? Into vaccine, into anti-vaccinationism. I think it's incumbent on us to sort of say, well, why would they think that? And there's a variety of reasons. Some it's true hesitancy, they don't know. And so the best intervention would be education to be compassionate for say parents, saying we understand that you are worried that putting something in your child's body is harmful, but here, here is something you should know more. And there have been effective campaigns where health professionals and others literally take the time to explain to people and it reduces vaccine hesitancy. You know, some have a well thought out, profound, you know, sort of libertarian sensibility where they say, you know, my personal freedom is the most important thing. You know, there may not be anything we can do about that, right? In which case we have to go to sort of plan B, which might mean saying we need to have mandatory masking requirements or vaccine requirements. It's important for us to recognize that in those cases, we are going against their moral compasses. It may still be justifiable, right? But I'm uncomfortable with the idea of, well, they're just totally crazy and wrongheaded. And so what we're doing is just fine. No, no, I don't think we should let ourselves off the hook. I think we should say, look, they have a different, as you put it, moral compass, and we are exerting power over and against that, but we feel we're justified in that. Right, so we should respect that there are differences of opinion, but in a large polity, like we're talking the United States right now, there's gonna be diversity of moral compasses. Some public health interventions will be required and they will violate individuals and communities own moral compasses. And we should set the bar pretty high to say in under what conditions is that acceptable? So in short, having some level of understanding of others' philosophical views allows us to act in our current world and to take positive steps instead of being paralyzed. Through that lens, this season can act almost as a Rosetta Stone to help translate and understand perspectives that may otherwise seem unintelligible. Which brings us to our third reason why we are starting in the headwaters, which is that it allows us to better challenge dominant moral, ethical, and political viewpoints, both from within American politics and from within public health. A deep investigation of these issues can reveal new problems, new solutions, and sometimes maybe both. To tell us more about this is Dr. Sridhar Venkatapuram. Hi, Sridhar. Hi, my name is Sridhar Venkatapuram. I am an academic based at King's College London, and I think of myself as an interdisciplinary philosopher and someone who works across global health, public health, and philosophy uh, in order to think and do something about health inequalities, injustice, and, and ethics. We'll hear more about his background later, but Sridhar, why do you think it's important to consider where these ideas of health equity come from? And is it enough for us to have an intuitive sense of what is right and wrong, or should we look deeper than that? 
That's a really good question. I think fundamentally what you're asking is, what's the point of ethics and philosophy in this space? It's a question that I ask myself daily sometimes. Let me start by saying that there's kind of an objective view about this question. It's like an academic question about like, oh, tell me what your discipline contributes to this question. It's a very different situation if you are in a situation of injustice, right? So for example, you are being discriminated against in the healthcare setting, or you aren't able to access certain kinds of health services because your government doesn't think that your kind of disease should be acknowledged or recognized or addressed, or, you know, you are poor and you have to now, you know, essentially sell yourself and your children into bonded labor in order to be able to afford health care for, you know, one of your family members. So ethics and equity when you are in it, as someone who is sort of got a lot at stake, matters because you have a sense that this is unjust, that I am suffering because of something that's happened out of my control. This is sort of a socially arbitrary reason, or there is malice and prejudice and bias against me, and therefore I am sick and dying as a result. It's unfair that I can't afford health care. And when you start asking those questions, you start doing ethics and you start doing philosophy. So those kinds of discussions and conversations, ethics and philosophy helps to both articulate, to refine, to reflect those kinds of claims, right? So it helps us say, well, you can either say, you know, as an American citizen, I have these rights, you know, and so there's lots of those. You can also say something like, I am a human being, and therefore, as a human being, I, I deserve and I have a right to be treated in a particular way. Our community should be able to live as well as other people, and so therefore, da da da. And so it really raises these questions about what is the purpose of government? What is the purpose of government in relation to health? What rights do I have in relation to my health, et cetera? Right. So that space can be intuitive you can be intuitive many activists were very intuitive they're like this is just wrong i don't i'm not a lawyer i'm not a judge but i know that this shouldn't be happening to me i know that the doctor discriminating against me is wrong and it's unfair and it shouldn't be so ethics and philosophy can really help us work through our intuitions and our claims and to be able to identify what's right so it sounds like being intuitive is sufficient in some cases but particularly for people like myself who are coming to the issue of equity from a population that is not explicitly discriminated against, there really may be a need to go deeper into the reasoning and thinking behind these issues. Could you maybe give me an example or two of what that looks like? What's interesting is that once you start getting into it, there are some really deep and important philosophical problems that often are uh, kind of ignored or hid or sort of put aside or transformed into technical problems. So let me give you a couple of examples. So, you know, the one of the things about public health people, and as we're trained, whether it be in epidemiology or demography, is that we are trained to be utilitarians, right? And we don't even know what utilitarianism is, but we're sort of implicitly trained to it, which is that success is maximizing the number of cases of diseases averted, right? Or success is the number of vaccinations given or et cetera. But then what happens is that then there's some people that are left out, 
right? And and you're like, oh, well, it's just tragic that we can't help anyone or we can't help everyone, but we're, we're helping as many people as possible. So now the question is, you know, if those few people keep consistently being left out, then, you know, there's something wrong there, right? What's the alternative to this kind of maximizing approach in, you know, disease control program? And a lot of public health people feel this in their blood, right? They are like, oh, you know, helping the most people is the right thing to do. But then, you know, even when you say, no, 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 I don't help the most people, I care about specific vulnerable groups like the disabled or women or, you know, black people or something, but then they become maximizers within that group, right? So we're implementing a public health program to help this black community, and we're going to maximize the number of cases of heart disease averted, right? But then actually the people that you're leaving out are the worst off people in that community. But then there's much more kind of deeper things like in health economics um people start talking about rationality right so not maximizing not you know sort of in you know maximizing cost efficiency is irrational right so what they're basically saying is that if you want to help those few people uh, rather than helping more people then you're being irrational Right. And you think that this is far fetched, but in 1998, the World Bank came out with a huge report called Confronting AIDS. Right. And these very famous economists at the World Bank wrote this incredible book with lots of research. And their argument was poor countries should not spend money on AIDS drugs because that money could have more benefit if you spent it on some other development program right? So invested in children rather than spending it on people with HIV and AIDS because they're going to die anyway, and you're going to have to pay so much money to treat them, etc. Um, so that's a kind of problem. You know, you can't just sort of do it with intuition. You need to be able to provide some instruments and arguments that sort of counter that kind of uh, sort of analysis. Within this sort of context of health injustice and health inequality, you want to be able to go beyond your intuition to be able to think through and articulate and advocate. On the other side, when you actually are looking at public health policies and programs, you'll start to see that there's actually different kinds of ethical reasoning that's dominant. But also if you want to sort of, you know, sort of adjust to critique or something like that, you're going to need resources and tools to be able to, uh, to, be able to counter those dominant or prevailing paradigms. So in addition to those three reasons, I would add one from my experience putting this project together. Speaking personally as someone whose knowledge of philosophy and ethics was limited to watching all four seasons of The Good Place, putting this together has been an illuminating exercise. I would compare it to putting on glasses for the first time and getting a mild headache as the world snaps into focus. This project has helped to clarify a lot of big questions I've had for a very long time. And the good news is, you can hopefully get all of the benefit I have without putting all the work into making your own podcast. Anyways, I really hope you'll join me as we explore the headwaters together. So that's it. We did it. It's the end of our first real episode. We made it. Another big hope I have for this podcast is that it can spark a new community dedicated to addressing health disparities. In line with that, we have a bunch of ways to engage in the conversation. 
you can join our Reddit at Practicing Health Equity. That's Practicing without the G because we like to keep it casual. You can follow us on Twitter at Practicing Health Equity, also Practicing without a G, and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question, comment, or correction for me, email practicinghealthequity at gmail.com. Last but not least, tell all your public health nerd friends to subscribe. So that's it. Tune in next episode where we talk about some basic definitions of health and health equity. And here's a brief preview.